gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and Rachel Miller is my co-host. And today we're going to be talking to Rachel Denhollander. And I know a lot of our listeners know who you are, Rachel, but maybe you could share a little bit about yourself and your story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a wife to Jacob Den Hollander, mom to four kids. Uh, Jacob is currently a PhD student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We attend a small Reformed Baptist church here in Louisville. Uh, we homeschool our four kids. I was born and raised in Michigan, uh, homeschooled myself. Uh, both of us were and had, we had excellent experiences with homeschooling and we're loving so far the experience of homeschooling our kids too. Um, and that, you know, that kind of encompasses a, a significant part of our life right now. Uh, and then as well, I'm a survivor of sexual assault and do a lot of work in the sphere of advocacy uh, with education and working with various nonprofits, universities, corporations, and churches and denominations. Excellent. Thank you. I wanted to ask, you know, I, I feel fairly certain that most people, most of our listeners are familiar with your background of how you got involved with uh, advocacy. But uh, for those who might not, if you wanted to give a little, um, I guess, recap summary of how you got involved with advocacy. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm an attorney by education, a member of the California Bar Association, I'm a certified paralegal, uh, and I have a background in public policy. Uh, and so even before really engaging in full-time advocacy work, uh, I was quietly doing a lot of advocacy work using those skill sets uh, and, that, and that background. Uh, but I became much more known in the advocacy world uh, because I was the first person to speak publicly and file a police report against Larry Nassar uh, and worked very closely with investigators and prosecutors to put that 
case together uh, to reach other survivors uh, and, and worked with them for about two years until we got to the point where Larry pled guilty uh, to multiple counts of sexual assault and possession of child porn. Uh, and then that was when we had the, uh, the sentencing hearing uh, where most people became familiar with my name. Uh, but the advocacy really started years before that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, putting that case together with investigators and prosecutors uh, really pushed a lot of that forward. And then since that point in time, I have been working closely with various denominations, with corporations, institutions, nonprofits, uh, and just in a wide variety of capacities using both my legal background and legislative background, uh, as well as working in education. You know, I forgot to mention when we started that, um, Rachel, you have two books and um, people want to read more about your story and um, some of what we're talking about today. You, uh, Rachel's written What is a Girl Worth? And then I hi- also highly recommend How Much is a Little Girl Worth? And even though I don't have daughters, I read it to my niece and have a copy of it. So, And we're going to link both of those in episode notes. Uh, yeah, I read your, your book over Thanksgiving and, and really appreciated uh, all that went into that and all the work that you've done. And I got your um, What is a Little Girl Worth book. I got copies from my... Um, from my niece and all of my little cousins. Oh, that's uh, lovely. So it was a great thing for Christmas for them. And I've, I've heard tell that you're working on a version for boys. I correct? am. Yes, I am very excited about that too, because yeah. it's a message our boys need just as much as our girls. Absolutely. Colleen and I are both boy moms and you know, I can, yes. I, I, I do appreciate that as well. Um, so just a little plug for those. Thank you. So Rachel, what, what are some differences you've seen in how the church versus secular culture deals with abuse? Uh, honestly, I think that's one of the most interesting things uh, are some of the differences because, you know, whenever you have institutions uh, that become safe, safe harbors for abusers, whether or not that's intentional or who have mishandled reports of abuse, you have certain common threads that run through it. Uh, But there are also very different reasons at the core of why institutions do this. And what I have found most fascinating uh, is that churches are actually the most difficult uh, to be able to work with and to help understand uh, the damage that they're doing. And the reason for this is because churches are more often than not motivated by their theology and their convictions in how they are mishandling abuse rather than pure economic interest. So, for example, in in the case with Larry Nasser and Michigan State University, you had a university that harbored one of the worst predators in recorded campus and sports history. Uh, But they did it primarily for your expected reasons. Uh, Some people who received reports of Larry's abuse were close friends with him and just couldn't believe it, wouldn't believe it. You had police officers who just did very lazy police investigations multiple times when Larry was reported to law enforcement. You had some level of corruption in other police departments uh, where you had, you know, the head of the FBI department whining and dining with the president of the United States Association of Gymnastics. Um, And so you had, you know, he had all of these normal factors. You had economic interest, a a desire to hide liability, uh, desire to protect reputation. You had all of those things taking place with Larry Nassar. But when you deal with churches, it's a little bit different. There are churches that certainly have those concerns in their purview. But more often than not, particularly in conservative churches, it's actually theology that drives our response to abuse. Uh, It's misunderstandings of grace and forgiveness, a misunderstanding of pastoral authority, a misunderstanding of what it means to hold to the doctrines like sola scriptura 
in a way that leaves churches without any education or knowledge on how predators work and what sexually abusive dynamics look like. And because those things are theologically and convictionally motivated, more often than not, what happens is when someone raises their hand and says, hey, I see a problem here, the church says, oh, you're persecuting me. You you are attacking me. You want to tear down the church. You must be bitter. You must be angry. You You want to drag down these men of God. And they actually tighten ranks even more. And they batten down the hatches even more. Churches are the most difficult uh, to get to change uh, because they theologically and convictionally believe they are doing the right thing. And until we start dealing with the misplaced and misguided theology, it's going to be impossible to change how we handle abuse in our churches. What would you say are some of those, you kind of mentioned them, but if you'd expand a little bit, what would you say are some of the uh, theological beliefs that are underpinning a poor response or misunderstandings that are uh, underneath the poor response? Uh, I think one of the ones that you see very consistently is a misunderstanding of grace and forgiveness, where forgiveness and justice are in practicality held up as dichotomous to each other, as being in opposition to each other. And so a survivor who wants to pursue justice uh, or expects there to be some consequences to the abuser is automatically categorized as bitter or vindictive or unforgiving. A survivor who is uh, sees concern with reunifying with the abuser, say, you know, it's an abusive spouse, an abusive family member, a victim who does not want to reunify with the abuser is automatically characterized as uh, unloving or unforgiving or bitter. Uh, and so, you know, at the core of that, we're not teaching the full theology of God. We are acting as if justice and forgiveness are in opposition to each other when in reality they are mutually dependent on each other and both exist in the character of God and thus both should exist in our churches. Uh, So you see that at the core. I do think a lot of it as well is in this understanding of pastoral authority. We see the doctrine in scripture of pastoral authority and church authority and how that is a healthy and a good thing. But there are some churches that apply that in a way that really looks at the pastor as the only option uh, for dealing with situations in the church uh, and really takes the perspective uh, that if the pastor is the one put over the congregation, he is automatically equipped to handle and understand everything that takes place in that church. And so rather than relying on the body of Christ, rather than relying even on, uh, to an extent, common grace, Uh, in experts. And so understanding the dynamics of abuse and how abusers work and the way victims respond, what evidence looks like in sexual abuse cases, rather than being informed and knowledgeable in the way we approach abuse, pastors approach it as if they are the only option and that they are completely equipped all on their own to handle these allegations. And it leaves them very poorly equipped. Uh, We also often have a misunderstanding of what it means to be sola scriptura. You know, we see the doctrine of sola scriptura clearly taught in scripture. Uh, And in many ways, we understand uh, that how we define that has a lot of implications. For example, if someone needs heart surgery, they don't usually interview their heart surgeon, you know, to see if they hold to the doctrines of sola scriptura. They rely on that heart surgeon's medical expertise to be able to treat that particular ailment. Uh, But we don't approach abuse that way, even though abuse and trauma requires outside expertise, even though abuse and trauma has physical injury to the victims, to their neurologic system, to their hormones and their chemical system. Uh, And so the way we apply the doctrine of sola scripture in these cases is often in a way that leaves us without any support or any knowledge 
in, in how we approach and handle abuse and abusive dynamics. Uh, and we have to understand you know, that, that when we say that and we express that concern, that does not mean that we're taking Scripture lightly or that we're saying Scripture is not sufficient. It is recognizing the common grace that God has given all of us. It's recognizing the importance of the body of Christ, uh, and it's recognizing how we interpret that doctrine, the way we apply it to everything else, including our own medical care. And so those are a lot of the things that we need to really look at so that we can be better equipped to understand and approach abuse. Since uh, Theology Gal started a few years ago, I've been contacted by uh, a lot of people telling me their stories. And it's, I think, probably the most surprising is some of the similarities in in the stories, at least on how churches uh, responded to abuse. How do churches and um, church leaders tend to respond? I think there are several key mistakes, and you're right. There are consistent threads uh, across the board when it comes to an institutional church response to abuse. Uh, One of the ones that you typically see uh, is that churches often don't even recognize abuse or abusive dynamics, whether that's domestic abuse or sexual abuse. Uh, We do a very poor job recognizing grooming signs, warning signs, uh, understanding domestic and sexual abuse, and even being able to identify it. Uh, And so one thing that I do see quite commonly, particularly in domestic abuse cases, uh, is you see pastors uh, who don't even realize that domestic abuse is taking place. And so by the time they report it, if they even get that far, the damage that has been done is so extreme to the wife and the children. Uh, So our ability to recognize abuse is very often greatly hindered. Uh, Our ability to understand how to handle a direct allegation of abuse if you actually get a specific disclosure of sexual abuse. Uh, Oftentimes, pastors are very ill-equipped to know how to handle it. They don't know how to report that to authorities. They don't know what steps should be taken. Uh, It is not uncommon. In fact, it's very common for churches to want to vet that claim themselves. Uh, And again, often this comes from misguided theology, particularly if it's a pastor or a leader that's been accused. Uh, The verse that talks about not entertaining a charge against an elder, except on the testimony of two or three witnesses, is often grossly misapplied in a way that leads leaders to not even report the allegations of abuse uh, and to rely on the God-given civil authorities uh, to vet that claim. Oftentimes in the counseling, we see very consistent and damaging threads. There's a great lack of understanding for trauma and trauma responses. And so churches counsel in a way um, that it's deeply damaging to the survivor. Often there is a great lack of understanding uh, for the dynamics of abuse and how abusers work. Pastors are very easily fooled into mistaken, into mistaking uh, tears for genuine repentance into uh, giving abusers continual access to victims uh, in an effort to reunify or restore. Oftentimes, the counseling ideology that's employed uh, does not take into account any understanding of abuse or abusive dynamics or trauma. Oftentimes, the counseling that's employed views reunification and unity as the ultimate biblical goal rather than the glory of God. Uh, And sometimes God is most glorified by justice. And sometimes unity is not possible because someone is not walking in true repentance. And the ability of most pastors to really recognize that is greatly hampered by their lack of training and education with abuse and abusive dynamics. And those are threads that you consistently see running through the church. Uh, In addition, it is very common for abusers to be able to hop from church to church, particularly if they're in leadership, to continually take new pastorate positions when what they have done becomes known. Oftentimes, this is done under a mistaken understanding of grace and forgiveness. 
and rather than holding to the biblical standards of what an elder is required to be and do, uh, and holding to the biblical standard of publicly rebuking an elder who is found in sin so that it is a warning to everyone, instead elders are almost given a free pass, and they're allowed to continue hopping from church to church and continue abusing. And when you put all those dynamics and threads together, what more often than not that results in is hundreds at times of victims left in the wake of these pastors and these churches and just incredible damage that's been done to the sheep that these men were supposed to be protecting. Yeah, you know, I've seen, just like Colleen has said, and through my own writing and through my own um, interaction with, uh, particularly with women online, um, I've heard many stories and there are a lot of similarities, as you said, between the, the accounts, uh, tendency to handle things in-house or a desire to, like you said, and then a misunderstanding of the dynamics of abuse and what to look for. One of the other things that I have read and have, have, have seen discussed is to do with um, how churches are unwittingly welcoming to, uh, to abusive people, right? Does that make sense that, they're, that they are safe places in a lot of ways that they draw and attract people who, who want to be abusive with others or who tend to be abusive in their treatment of others. Um, what do you think is going on as far as the dynamics in a church and how the church then has failed in protecting and assisting abuse survivors? I think ultimately you see a lot of the dynamics that we've already discussed in terms of the misplaced theology um, and how that leads churches to counsel in a way that's deeply damaging, to urge reunification in a way that allows victims to continue being victimized and keeps abusers in power. Uh, it allows abusers to uh, even find new victims and reach new victims because of being left in positions of power. Uh, and so the damage is just incredible in the way churches far often, uh, more often than not handle abuse. Uh, and you're right, abusers do actually seek out churches. Uh, one of the most prominent psychologists in the area of uh, abuse, in particular sexual abuse, is a woman named Anna Salter. Uh, and she has done phenomenal work uh, in understanding what is going on in the mind of a pedophile and how pedophiles operate, how they think, how they're able to groom the society around them. And one of the things she discovered as she was working with these sex offenders is that they admitted intentionally targeting faith communities. These pedophiles intentionally target faith communities for the exact dynamics that we've already discussed because their, mis their misplaced ideologies and convictions regarding forgiveness and grace make churches some of the safest places for abuse victims, or for abusers rather, and some of the most dangerous places for an abuse victim to speak up. Uh, and in addition to that, while a church should be the greatest refuge for the victim, Victims also identify that churches are one of the worst places to go for help. In fact, there was a study done uh, just a couple of years ago where uh, a wide number of sexual assault victims were asked, who did you think was going to be the most helpful when you disclosed? Uh, and hands down, and then they, then they were given a list of options uh, of who they thought would be the most helpful when they disclosed abuse. And of course, you know, an option to write in their, their own uh, perspective. And these victims, hands down, identified church as what they anticipated being the most helpful. And the reason for that is because of what we preach and teach. You know, a victim sees a pastor preaching about holiness and righteousness, and they think, well, surely someone who understands God's holiness is going to be the best equipped to understand the evil that was done to me. 
surely someone who preaches on the importance of God's righteousness and justice and his wrath against sin is going to be the most equipped to understand the depth of damage done to me. Someone who preaches on trust and forgiveness and grace and mercy and safety and refuge and all these words that we use to describe Christ is going to be one of the safest places to disclose. But after victims were asked what they thought was going to be the most helpful, they were then asked when you did disclose who was actually the most helpful. And when they were asked who was actually the most helpful, churches actually came in dead last. They ranked behind the option of other. And that really should tell us something about our institutional response to abuse. In addition to that, what we also know when we look at recent data sets is that churches are notoriously horrible at handling abuse, and we actually have very high rates of abuse in our church, including clergy abuses. For example, there was a study done just a couple of years ago, actually there's a study done every year, that looks at the number one reason that churches are held liable in federal court uh, to people who sue them. And out of the last 11 years, nine out of those 11 years running, the number one reason that churches have been found liable in civil federal court is for mishandling sexual abuse or failing to prevent sexual abuse. And the other years, it's ranked number two. There was also a study recently done that examined insurance claims in Protestant organizations for allegations of sexual abuse, insurance claims that were paid out for sexual abuse that took place by an employee of the church. There were more claims of clergy and employee sexual abuse against Protestant churches than there were insurance claims against Catholic churches, even though the Catholic churches actually do a better job keeping track of those claims, and they only have a couple main insurance companies that are overseeing all those claims. So as much as we like to think of clergy sexual abuse as a Catholic problem, in reality, there is very good reason to believe we are as bad, if not worse, in sexual abuse in Protestant churches and and organizations, and that our response to it is absolutely abhorrent. And it's something we need to be taking seriously. You know, statistically, at least one in four women have experienced sexual assault and one in three women have experienced domestic violence. And at least one in six men have experienced sexual assault. And we know those rates are just as high in the church as they are out of the church. So when a pastor is looking out at his congregation, he can be pretty certain that one in four of those women have experienced sexual abuse, one in three have experienced domestic violence, and one in six of those men have experienced sexual violence. Now, if we knew we had a problem that was plaguing a quarter of the women in our church, don't you think we'd have a ministry for it? You know, we have meal trains for mothers who have just had babies. We have a ministry, oftentimes churches have ministries that are dedicated just to college students or just to high school students or just to young singles or to newly married couples or, you know, parenting classes. Oftentimes churches will have very specific ministries, you know, a ministry to uh, couples who have suffered miscarriage, perhaps, a ministry to, uh, you know, couples that are or individuals that are out of work. Usually if we see a problem that is plaguing our church, we, do, we are intentional about addressing it and saying, how do we need to meet the needs of this congregation, knowing that so many of them are suffering from this? And yet we almost never do that with sexual abuse and domestic abuse. It's almost become, or I guess not even almost, but it's become controversial even to talk about the need to deal with abuse in the church. Why do you think there's reluctance to address abuse and talk about these things? 
You know, I think a lot of it really does come from uh, our tendency to want to categorize these things in political terms. Uh, so one thing that I have consistently found is that advocates who speak up about abuse issues are automatically categorized as that's a liberal feminist issue. You know, that's a, that's a democratic issue. That's a social justice issue, a social justice warrior issue. And we categorize these things off as if they are political ideologies. When in fact, caring about justice is a biblical ideology. We have a God who is defined in part by his attribute of justice. If you search the Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, you see repeated cries for justice. You can't read the book of Proverbs even without coming away with multiple instructions for how justice is to be carried out and the importance that we're to put on justice. Yet we are commanded to be an embodiment of Christ and his ideologies here on earth. That doesn't mean just saying the right theology. That means doing the right things, including justice. And so oftentimes, rather than characterizing these issues as if they are political ideologies, which they are not, we need to understand that these are biblical ideologies uh, and that where we may disagree with some of the political ideologies uh, that have risen up, they have largely risen up because the church has left a vacuum. When we are not talking about issues of justice and abuse, when we're not talking about what a godly marriage should look like and the devastation of domestic abuse, when we're not talking in a fully orbed understanding of biblical sexuality and the devastation that sexual abuse brings, when we're not talking about what civil justice should look like and the reality that the civil government is a God-given arm, when we're not talking about what counseling should look like and the restoration of the body and the soul after trauma, when we're not talking about these things, we leave a vacuum where other ideologies come up. So what the church really needs to do is rather than categorizing these issues off as a political ideology, they need to go back to scripture. And then we need to do a very thorough look at what scripture says about these issues and start forming a truly biblical response to these dynamics and educating ourselves in a way that allows us to do that. I was just thinking, um, you're talking about the, the interplay between justice and forgiveness. Right, and I was thinking, um, I think it was at the, the sentencing hearing, is that right, when, when you spoke, the, the speech that everyone is familiar with? Yes, yes, that was Larry's sentencing hearing. Yeah. Um, and the being able to say, you know, there is justice being done. He's being held guilty or held accountable for what he has done, right? But then also offering forgiveness, which doesn't wipe away what he's done. It doesn't take away the punishment that he has earned, right? But that you can say, you know, I would, would like you to find repentance and forgiveness, and I'm willing to forgive you for what you've done. And I think I, I thought it was a very good example of what you're talking about of the balance between the appropriate balance between justice and forgiveness and how you know, they, they coexist for us as believers. Yeah, they do. And they coexist because they're found in the character of God coexisting. They are found in our understanding of theology. Uh, you know, you can look at uh, the, the very gospel itself, the idea that Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins. You know, and oftentimes when we talk about that, we talk about it like it makes it wiped away in the sense that, um, you know, that, that we don't get the punishment, that there's no punishment. But in reality, it's not that forgiveness means there is no punishment. 
It means that someone else willingly stood in our place for that punishment. That's the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. And only in the Christian gospel do you have a theology where justice is never sacrificed on the altar of forgiveness, where justice and forgiveness are not in opposition to each other. In every other theology in the world, forgiveness essentially means a wiping clean of the slate, where it's as if those things never happen. If you can just do enough other good things to merit forgiveness, uh, then you can, you know, then you can get to uh, that that religion's equivalent of heaven. But in Christianity, we are told that no amount of good things you do wipes that slate clean. That the only way for forgiveness to be found is for someone else to take the penalty for you, because justice must be done. Sin is that evil; it matters that much to God that justice is always done. Either it is done on the wrongdoer, or justice falls on the God who willingly stood in that wrongdoer's place. But justice is always done. Justice is the foundation for forgiveness. And that's what allowed me to say to Larry, I forgive you. I extend forgiveness to you. And I pray for your repentance. And yet also advocate for the fullest measure of earthly justice. Because in reality, justice is the foundation for forgiveness. It is only in that framework that the evil that someone has done is not minimized or mitigated or excused or treated as if it didn't matter. And when we lose sight of those ideologies, when we lose sight of those theologies and those beautiful biblical truths, we handle abuse in a way that makes it seem like abuse is not really that evil. And when we do that, we dim the glory and goodness of God. See, darkness and light exist in opposition to each other. And I'm sure all of us have had the experience at some point in time of walking out of a brightly lit room into another brightly lit room, you know, or walking out of a brightly lit room into you know, the hot summer sun. And the difference is not that startling. It might be a little bit noticeable, but it's not that startling. But when you walk out of a really, really dark room into the noonday sun, that brightness of the sun is just blinding in all its glory. And that's what we need to understand when we dim the evil that is done and we treat it like it doesn't matter, like justice doesn't matter, that what we have really done is dimmed the glory of God. We've dimmed the hope and the beauty of the final redemption where every tear is wiped away. That final redemption is so incredibly beautiful because the darkness is real. Scripture tells us that all creation groans waiting for God's redemption. And yet far more often than not, in churches, we act like there's no groaning really happening. Or when we are faced with a survivor who is groaning under the weight of the evil that was done to them, our response is, but look at all the beautiful things God can do. And that cheapens the beauty of that final redemption. It cheapens the glory of God. It cheapens his goodness. It cheapens his justice. We have to deal with the darkness and face the darkness and not minimize it and not mitigate it for God's glory and God's beauty and that redemption to be the refuge that it really should be for us. Rachel, we've seen so many examples of church dealing poorly, the churches dealing poorly with abuse. How should churches deal with abuse? And I do know that there are pastors out there and uh, church leadership out there that are thinking through that very thing right now. Yeah, I've been very grateful to see the number of church leaders that are really striving to do this well and men who are leading biblically and presenting a fully orbed perspective on God's character and God's justice and the gospel. 
and I'm deeply grateful for them. You know, there are a couple dynamics to answer that question. What should a church do? There are policy issues involved in that. And then there are counseling and shepherding issues involved in that. Uh, from a policy perspective, uh, the organization that I most recommend for training is called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. It is by far the most in-depth training and really gets to the heart of how we understand abuse, not just minimizing liability for churches. Uh, and that's critical because you can have the best policies in place, but if your heart understanding of abuse is not transformed uh, by the gospel and by understanding human suffering, the motivation to follow those policies or even a full understanding of what those policies entail is going to be very short-sighted. Uh, and so Grace is the organization I recommend for a policy. Uh, and then in addition to that, you have shepherding dynamics. How does a shepherd come alongside someone who is suffering this way? I think the very first thing we do is we grieve. We tell the truth about what they have suffered. And that requires a lot of grieving the damage. You know, for a pastor, it really should require getting some information and training on trauma and understanding the depth of the damage that's been done to a sexual assault survivor or to a survivor of domestic abuse. Uh, because we typically think of trauma as, uh, as an emotional thing, you know, as something that damages our emotions. But trauma actually damages our bodies. In fact, uh, there's an incredible book called The Body Keeps the Score, and it's written by a psychologist who's not a Christian, but the scientific information on what happens in trauma is incredibly important uh, for anyone to understand, but particularly pastors, because the reality is about a quarter of the women in their congregation have suffered this way, and about one in six men have. Uh, and so understanding that's important. But one of the things that we learn in the book, The Body Keeps the Score, is the depth of neurologic damage that actually happens with trauma. So just as one small example, uh, brain scans were done of survivors uh, who were experiencing flashbacks, survivors of any form of trauma who were experiencing flashbacks or having the memories of that trauma recalled. And when they did those brain scans, what they found was that entire regions of the brain have learned to shut off in trauma so that the brain scans of a trauma survivor in a flashback actually look like brain scans of a stroke survivor. There's neurologic damage. We learned in those brain scans that different regions of the brain light up when those memories are recalled compared to regions of the brain that should be lighting up when normal memories are recalled. So normally when memories are recalled, brain activity is pretty diffuse because those memories have been spread out into the brain. But when a traumatic memory is recalled, it's actually the, brain, the center of the brain that processes current input that lights up, which means the survivor is actually re-feeling everything they felt when they experience that trauma. They're not remembering what they felt. They're actually re-experiencing it. Trauma literally changes the way our brain works. It causes actual neurologic damage. It's not an emotional injury alone. It is a physical injury. This has massive implications for how the body responds chemically. So normally our bodies would secrete certain stress hormones when we're scared or frightened. And then our body would secrete additional hormones to calm those stress hormones back down. But in a trauma survivor, those stress hormones are being secreted on an almost constant basis. And the hormones that are supposed to be secreted to calm down those responses aren't being secreted at all. This causes extreme stress on the heart, on the digestive system, on the blood pressure, uh, on the immune system. There are real physical implications to trauma. And understanding how to walk with a survivor through that requires understanding the physical and neurologic damage that's been done to them because that helps guide our understanding of why trauma survivors respond the way they do, the types of things that are harmful or helpful to them, 
And it helps guide uh, the depth of knowledge that we have and the compassion that we have. It also helps emphasize to us the importance of having physicians who are skilled in healing those forms of trauma, the importance of bringing on skilled trauma therapists and psychologists who can help navigate those physical realities or prescribe medication that helps balance out those hormonal systems or reactivate the regions of the brain that should be being activated or not being activated. And so when a pastor can understand the depth of trauma, that really is the starting point for knowing how to shepherd well. In addition to that, on a very practical level, we tell the truth about the evil and we grieve the evil. And then we look for practically how we come alongside the survivors. So for example, a survivor that is undergoing a court process, say a domestic abuse survivor that is currently having to litigate for custody of her children to try to protect them from an abusive spouse or a sexual assault survivor that is engaged in court proceedings with her abuser. Uh, those The days for those victims as they're undergoing that process are exhausting. Getting just the most practical things done can be completely upended by a call from a prosecuting attorney or someone that you have to deal with in the case. So very practical measures, asking questions like, can we put them on a meal train? Can we bring you a freezer meal so that if your day gets upended, uh, with necessary court things or phone calls, you have a freezer meal to pull out. Asking very practical questions, particularly for domestic abuse survivors. Uh, you know, how is, how is this domestic abuse survivor going to escape an abusive husband and make ends meet without some financial help? Who's going to pick the kids up from school so that the domestic abuse survivor can be working to provide for the family and yet not have to rely on the abusive spouse uh, for childcare? Who is going to fill that void in these children's lives uh, you know, of being a healthy male role model or helping portray a healthy marriage? Um, so there are deeply, deeply practical questions that a pastoral team should be asking as they're walking alongside abuse survivors that will also help guide the shepherding. And most importantly, you do so while speaking the truth about what that victim has suffered and grieving it with them and pointing them to the hope of that final redemption letting them know how much God cares about what was done to them. Oftentimes when I'm working with survivors, I actually start with reading the book of Revelation because survivors need to see that picture painted of Christ coming back with a robe dipped in blood, bearing the sword to mete out justice. And they need to know this is how much God cares about what happened to you and that there is hope and you are seen and what you have been through matters. Thank you. Those are very um, helpful, practical ways. Uh, that uh, our churches should uh, or could help uh, respond to abuse survivors around us. Um, I was wondering, and you know, I'm asking you, Rachel, for this, but if, if it's something that you, that would not be, um, you think you've already said it or it wouldn't help to try to do this. I was thinking that it might be useful to, you know, run a couple scenarios. So you say you have a woman um, and in a domestic abuse survivor in the middle of a problem and she comes to her church and she tells her pastor what's going on. And, you know, you can, if you could give us like the, what not to do, like what often happens versus, you know, ideally what should happen in such a situation. Sure. Uh, so in that, in that type of case where a pastor is receiving a disclosure of domestic abuse, uh, there are a couple of things a pastor needs to bear in mind. Uh, the first thing he needs to bear in mind is that it's very rare to get a disclosure that's not accurate. And so, of course, um, you know, as authorities are investigating, you follow where the evidence leads. But you need to understand that invest that accusations of domestic or sexual violence 
uh, are very, very likely to be true. Uh, you need to understand the normal trauma responses of that domestic abuse survivor and be aware of the reality that you are almost certainly not getting the full story, meaning that that domestic abuse survivor has lived in abusive dynamics for so long that their perception of normal is greatly warped. They don't know what's normal anymore. They don't know what is or isn't abuse. They're very unlikely to tell you specifically, I'm a victim of domestic abuse or my husband is raping me, uh, or my husband is beating our children, or my life is at risk. They're not going to say those things because their sense of reality uh, and their, their understanding of normalcy has been so shaped and shifted by their abuser that they don't know what's normal anymore. Uh, you need to understand that there's a great deal of shame that accompanies domestic abuse. So when you get a disclosure, it's very unlikely that you're not getting the full depth of the abuse that's happened. And while you obviously, uh, you know, you, you bear in mind that false accusations can happen, you respond in a way that communicates support for the survivor and belief to the survivor. And the reason you do that is because more likely than not, it's true. And because if you do not do that, you shut down the only avenue of getting to the truth. When a disclosure of abuse is made, the victim is very gently testing, am I safe? Am I heard? Does this person understand? And they are most likely telling you some of the least terrible things to gauge your response. The things that they're most sure about and the things that are least shame-filled. And so if your automatic response is not to support and believe that person and move forward uh, by reporting to the police, by providing support, uh, what you will do is you will immediately shut down any pathway for gathering evidence. And so you respond in a way that immediately prioritizes the victim's safety because the most dangerous time for a domestic abuse survivor is when they reach out for help. That's when the vast majority of deaths in domestic violence occur is right before the woman leaves or immediately right after. This means that you need to have a plan in place long before you are faced with the situation so that you know what community resources to connect that survivor to. You have safe housing in place. There is an emergency and an escape plan. If a woman discloses to you a plan that includes what you do with minor children, ideally you should be connected to good attorneys in your community who can come alongside the domestic abuse survivor and help navigate them through the legal process of what may very likely be divorce and custody proceedings. Uh, those plans need to be in place ahead of time so that you can begin that process of keeping the woman and children safe as the investigation is going forward. One of, one of the stories I've heard very often are stories when a, when a, a child in a congregation is being abused you know, by someone else in the congregation. And unfortunately, all too often, I've, I've heard very similar stories of the, the parents of that child going to the church leadership and the church leadership saying, well, we'll, we'll deal with this in-house. Mm -hmm. But in a situation like that, how, how should that be dealt with? If a child has made a specific disclosure of abuse or describes something that appears to be abusive, that should immediately be reported to the authorities, to the police specifically. A lot of times mandatory reporting statutes also require reporting to CPS, but it really does need to be a dual report because CPS is often swamped uh, with investigations. Technically, they really only investigate things that relate to custody issues 
in general, uh, where it's where it's a custodial parent or a guardian who's been the abuser. And so while you may have to report to CPS as part of mandatory reporting, a report should immediately be made also to the police and law enforcement. It should be done with the pastors providing support and making and helping make that report going with the family disclosing what they have been told. Uh, and then in addition to that, if the child has identified somebody that is in the church, the neck, especially if it's a leader or someone uh, who has access to other children in any way, shape, or form, what really must happen is as soon as that person knows, as soon as the alleged perpetrator knows that a report has been made and that they're under investigation, the entire church needs to be notified. And when you do that, you do not disclose the identity of the victim and you don't disclose details that could identify the victim. You do disclose the alleged perpetrator's name and you say it very factually. We are informing the congregation that a police report has been filed alleging sexual abuse perpetrated by this person against a, you know, a child in our church or an adult in our church, at least enough to give people the idea of what has been reported. And if you have any information, we are urging that you contact investigators at this number and you provide them with a way to contact investigators that should go out both verbally and in writing so that there's a record of it and people have it to refer back on. Uh, The reason that you do this is because more often than not, some of the greatest evidence in sexual assault cases is the pattern of behavior, the pattern of grooming behavior, uh, the pattern of abusive behavior. And a good investigation into those allegations cannot take place if people in your congregation who hold some of the information do not know an investigation is taking place. This is not defamation. It's not slander because you are simply factually reciting what has taken place. A report has been filed against this person making this allegation. Here's where you go if you have information. That is a purely factual statement. You're not making a conclusion on the merits of the allegation. It is simply a recitation of facts. That is perfectly safe to do. It's not slander. It's not defamation. And it is not entertaining a charge. When you don't have that blanket policy of immediately reporting to the congregation as soon as the perpetrator knows, then what the eldership really has done is put themselves in a position of deciding which charges they're going to entertain. And so a lot of the objection that I often hear, particularly when it's a church leader who's been accused, is, well, we're not supposed to entertain a charge against a leader unless there are two witnesses. Well, A, you're not going to know if there are two witnesses until people know there's an investigation going on. B, a witness includes biblically someone who has come to know of the event. So again, uh, you know, understanding biblically what a witness means actually really broadens your understanding of what counts as evidence, even scripturally and even under Levitical law. Uh, and most importantly, if you don't have a policy of blanketly telling the church when an allegation has been made, then you actually are entertaining a charge because it puts the pastors in the position of determining which charges are valid enough to report to the congregation and which ones they don't think are valid enough. That's entertaining a charge. That's making a determination on the charge. And so a policy of immediately reporting to the congregation as soon as the alleged perpetrator knows that a police report has been made is absolutely critical in ensuring that an investigation is done properly and ensuring that you are not put in the position of being the one to determine the merits of that charge. At that point in time, some very practical steps will have to be taken uh, to make sure that if these allegations are true, the perpetrator does not have continued access to children uh, while this is taking place. Uh, 
Uh, and for that, I again, I, I recommend for some of these practical questions, I recommend the uh, the group Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. Uh, and there is also an excellent book that's been written that's been written on policies. Um, and it was written by Boz Chavidian. And it's I'm trying to pull the name for you here, but it's it's a excellent book on the policies that churches should follow uh, in and handling these types of questions. It's called the Child Safeguarding Policy for Churches and Ministries. And it will go through all of these scenarios for you and look at what steps do you take in these situations. How do you handle a child abuser, uh, a known child abuser that comes to your church and wants to engage in ministry? How do you handle it uh, when there's an allegation that's brought and you're waiting to see what the authorities do with it? Um, you know, it walks you through all of those practical steps that should be taken from a policy perspective. And then from a shepherding perspective, you make sure that those families' needs are cared for, you know, that you are staying involved and up to date with what's taking place in the investigation. You ask the detectives things very proactively. Uh, you know, are there, are there attendance lists that perhaps the detective should have of things, you know, of people that were attending your church? during various points in time? Are there other witnesses that you know of that have been around this person or around this family or were there at the time of the event who you should be approaching and asking them to talk to police? Um, you know, making sure that you are aware of any coming up, any court dates that are impending so that there can be support for the family, both emotionally and in very practical measures. Uh, and you shepherd that family very well. And then, of course, there are also shepherding questions that arise with the alleged perpetrator as well, and making sure that they are shepherded through that process. And again, the book that I recommend for going into the nitty-gritty of some of these policies is the Child Safeguarding Policy for Churches and Ministries, because that will do a much more thorough outline of exactly how you handle these situations from a policy perspective when you encounter them. Thank you. That that explains um, in very practical ways. I think it will help. Um, our listeners to hear uh, what you described. Some of these things we've already discussed. What are some things that our churches can do to be proactive in protecting um, our members and, and those who are vulnerable in our con- in our congregations? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I get asked the question a lot, what's the most important thing we can do? And usually when people ask that question, they're thinking of a specific policy measure. You know, what, what's the most important out of the 12 steps that I can put in place? Uh, and the policy is very important. Your child safeguarding policy is important. But what we really have to understand is a couple things. Uh, most abuse that takes place in churches does not necessarily take place in the context where a good child protection policy would even help. It doesn't often take place, for example, in the middle of a Sunday school classroom. Uh, more often than not, it's the relationships formed in the church that give that predator access to that child. So your policy is only going to go so far, and it's really not going to go that far. It's good to have it, uh, but it's not going to go that far in stopping the majority of child abuse that's taking place in our churches. The second thing we have to understand is that our policy is only as good as the heart understanding and motivation of the people following it. You can have excellent policy in place, but if your congregation and your employees don't understand why we have that policy and what the specific provisions are for and why it is so important that we follow them, the likelihood of it getting followed well is very slim. So really, the most important thing that pastors and leaders can do is message that abuse matters, that trauma is understood, and that victims will be taken seriously when they speak up. 
And the reason that that messaging is so critical is because that's what communicates to your employees and the people in charge of the policy, hey, this matters and you better follow it. That's what teaches your congregation that abuse and issues of justice are in fact close and near and dear to God's heart and part of the gospel and that they're going to be understood that way. That's what messages to survivors that the dynamics of abuse are understood. So if they speak up and bring evidence, somebody's actually going to understand what they're talking about, that it's a safe place for them to speak up. It's also what messages to predators that they are not going to be taken, uh, that they're not going to be protected, that they're not going to be safe in this church, that if a victim speaks up, they're likely to be believed and that those crimes are going to be reported. Predators are always looking for where they are going to be safe. And how an institution messages on that issue of abuse is the greatest indicator for whether or not survivors are going to be safe when they speak up and whether or not predators are going to be safe to continue preying on children with impunity. How you message is the most critical. So that means uh, talking very openly about your child protection policy and why you have that policy. It means preaching and teaching on issues of justice and abuse. It means training people in your church to understand trauma so that there is a safe place to go if a survivor speaks up and making sure that your congregation is aware of those people, that dealing with these issues are front and center and it comes from a knowledge-based perspective and a scriptural-based perspective that takes into account the full, uh, full orb of God's character and a full understanding of the gospel and treats abuse like the evil thing that it really is. That is the greatest thing a pastor can do in protecting their congregation. Rachel, that's so so helpful, and everything that you've said is is um, has been so helpful, and I think it's going to be helpful to so many of our listeners. When when is your book for uh, little boys coming out? We don't have a release date yet. We are okay. still working on it. Okay, at least for now. If you haven't read Rachel's book, uh, What is a Girl Worth? I highly recommend it. And then also your book for little girls, which we've discussed in our group, Eve, both of them, such important books. Uh, I've enjoyed both of them. And the, the one for little girls, a great gift for the little girls in your life. I know some people have asked this, what ages uh, would you say that that book is geared towards? Oh, goodness. Um I mean, I love the book, Uh, and I've given it to adults. Um, In terms of picture and and literary style, it's probably geared for about ages three to seven, seven, eight. Um, In terms of the truths contained in it and the way it's portrayed, I frequently see it given to adults and teenagers as well, because there is, and there really was designed to be so much depth. Uh, to the truths and the concepts discussed in there. Uh, And honestly, I think sometimes children's books do the best job communicating uh, in the simplest way and reminding us of the things that we most need to hear. So I I think it's, uh, you know, ages two to 200. Okay. I I think that's great. I read it to my 12-year-old niece, so I would agree with you. I just know that somebody had asked that in our group, so I thought I'd see what you said. Yeah, that's fair. Thank you so much, Rachel, for for joining us. And it, I know that you mentioned that resource from Boz. If there's any other resources you think would be helpful, we can put them in the episode notes um, along with your books. And I, you know, second 
checking. I'll put the the Grace website too because that is such a great yeah. resource um, when we're talking about abuse in the church. So thank you again, Rachel, for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much.